Good evening. I'd like to uh, welcome you. Um, my name is Akinchano. I'll be sitting here and uh, helping you with what I believe are very powerful, very uh, heart-opening exercises. And I'm glad that you have made your way down here. Uh, I know there are alternative to Buddhist meditation retreats on weekends. I uh, I rejoice that you have made this decision to come here. And I look forward to be spending time with you in this coming two days. My idea for tonight is to ask that you have all found a space where you know you will be sleeping tonight. And I trust that you have received something to eat. It's difficult to address spiritual subjects if such needs are not met beforehand. And um, if you are not clear about any of the above needs, then um, I think you will have to ask some of the people who have showed you your tasks and duties, whether these things can be figured out for you. If these things, as I hope, are figured out, then I would suggest we collect ourselves in silence for, for half an hour, and then I would like uh, to suggest also a ritual start with the refugees. Uh, I have brought some sheets, and they will be passed out and then I would like to say a few things about retreats and about our topic of the wilderness of the heart, a big topic. And I uh, hope to bring some ideas as to what we uh, may be doing in the next two and a half days. Yes? Am I audible? Good? You have all enough cushions, pillows, benches, Chairs, blankets. Good. It's nice to see some familiar faces, and I trust you have what you need to make it through the next half hour. Yeah? Good. Please uh, stretch your legs a bit. like to ask for your attention for a few thoughts on what we are about to do. Um, maybe before that, I'd love to hear what this and how many of you are doing this for absolutely the first time. That gives me an idea. Yeah, there's no shame attached to this. There's nothing wrong. <laughs> Please just let me know who of you are here on your first retreat. Yeah? Okay, uh, we will make time tomorrow so that I can see you as a group or maybe as two groups. And we will have an opportunity to um, maybe talk about some of the things that may be going on. And I'll be 
hoping to help you with your posture. Thank you. Our weekend is um, a weekend retreat, and the form of the retreat is slightly artificial. It may surprise some of you that the retreat isn't really a very old invention in Buddhist teaching. Um, in fact, retreats as we know them is a remarkably recent invention. Uh, it comes from the Burmese tradition, and um, in the days I have lived in Thailand, there was no such thing. You know, monasteries didn't do retreats. Um, one lived in a way that was contemplative, but actually uh, the crystalline form of a retreat was a total novelty, and it is only just starting now in Thailand. Um, um, retreats have something to do with the craziness of the rest of our lives. Retreats are useful because they are uh, a counterpoint to some of the speed in our lives, and that's why they are um, basically very powerful, because they help us to get a perspective on what's going on in most of the rest of our lives. Retreat is not something we can aim at to continue living like. Yeah, Just to be clear, this is not the optimal way to live. I would not recommend uh, that you try to design your life as a continual retreat. It's an intervention technique. It's like taking medicine. Yeah. Uh, you don't continue doing that uh, when you start feeling better. Yeah. So you may decide that you go kind of like on a fast or you go for a, um, a cure or so or you go and visit the spa or you go and do some jogging or so as a regular maintenance. Uh, but this is not the ideal way of life, just to be clear. Yeah. It's a counterpoint to some of the things we do in our everyday life. Uh, the idea is that we learn something and then we go back with what we have learned to the everyday life rather than resent that our everyday life doesn't look like a retreat. Yeah. Or uh, worse, turning everything we do in our everyday life into a sort of meditational obstacle. Yeah. Your kids and your family and your job. And this is not the idea of a retreat. What we do in these slightly artificial conditions is we are silent. This is rare that we as a group are silent. What silence does if we are in a group is, is, is quite amazing. Some of us experience that as uh, delightful because there are no overt conflicts. Some of us experience silence in groups of people as slightly threatening because uh, we never know what they think of us. Um, silence does all kinds of things in our psychology. In the retreat, we maintain not just silence, we maintain something called noble silence. Or Noble silence is not a type of thick blanket we throw around ourselves so that other people don't disturb us. Um, noble silence is an attitude of benevolence and respect. It is something we do because we know we all have good reasons for being interested in meditation practice for being interested in introspective work. 
And that work cannot be done by other people for us. So we want to help others as much as we expect or wish that they help us in doing that work we can only do ourselves. And silence is one of the things that helps us do that work because it um, it doesn't pull our attention outside. There's nothing that pulls our attention more outside than other people. You will see as a meditator that the sound of a voice, of a voice you understand. If you don't understand what the voice says, it's a little easier. But voices, as human beings, are the most uh, fascinating subjects of our attention. We are very keenly interested in other people. Sometimes this interest is tinged by wish, longing, desire. Sometimes this interest is tinged by aversion, hatred, uh, revulsion. Uh, But in any way, it is a type of interest that is strongly uh, focused on other human beings. As a species, we are profoundly fascinated with ourselves. So, obviously that makes uh, introspective practice more challenging. We do that to help each other, and yet at the same time we are very fascinating. We think, hmm, this got, she's got a nice blanket, or wow, you know, she's really sitting still. My God, that's an angelic face. I wonder what she's thinking. You know? So we, we, we do populate each other's awareness, and we do populate each other's minds and hearts. So one way we can channel this interest is by consciously being in a group being supportive of each other and benevolently so not a hostile silence and at the same time we're not making demands on each other's attention that still may mean that you can reach a a towel or you may be able to hold the door or to uh, bring a cup for your neighbor but you do not engage this person in a social way. So, because we all acknowledge it is difficult to turn the light of our awareness inside. This is not an easy act. And to help ourselves to be able to do that better, we make an agreement with each other that we don't call upon ourselves to bring the attention outward, bring it uh, to focus on me by smiling at you, hoping you would smile at me, signifying that you like me or that you don't feel threatened by me or that you are harmless or that you have just made a funny little private joke or something like that. These are totally harmless things. They're totally human things. Please understand, there's nothing morally wrong with this. Contrary. It would be dreadful if we wouldn't be able to do that. But under these conditions... We acknowledge it is not easy to learn and be with ourselves. Um, And we need every help to make that more possible and to make such introspective exercises more uh, profound. So, this is a gesture of benevolence and a gesture of helping each other. Please switch off your mobile phones and refrain from reading and refrain from engaging attention of other people in this cause in a conscious way. 
If the house is on fire or if your leg is broken, please don't hesitate to go completely against my suggestion now. Uh, be reasonable. I count on your uh, maturity and on your good common sense. Buddhism is for people with, uh, uh, with their heads on their shoulders and with common sense. Our retreat will also consist of various gestures, recitations. We ritualize um, eating and sitting and walking and standing and breathing. Um, there is a conscious um, slowing down of activities. And all this has a single purpose. It is to, to make us more aware. Not to make our activities be in any particular way. It is no it is no better to breathe deeply than to breathe shallowly or to eat slowly than to eat quickly in terms of meditation. What we want is not the manipulation of the act we are performing consciously. What we wish is uh, a more aware attitude of what's happening. For practical reasons, it is indeed better to slow down one's eating. If you eat faster than 20 minutes, your, uh, the effect of feeling satiated is very likely to, to kick in only after you have already eaten too much. So there are good reasons for eating slowly. Um, but in terms of meditation, we do not really intend to manipulate the activities we are observing and we are attending to. Not consciously so. We do so anyway by simply attending to them. They change. But we are not interested in only deep breaths or only slow movements. We are interested in everything. And we're trying to find ways of attending more profoundly to everyday activities. So that's why we um, tend to uh, do things in groups, do things ritually. We also, and this is a, a, a wish, uh, I, I'm aware that retreats always have a collective character. I, I have done many retreats and it is striking to me that whenever I meet a group like you, within a short, very short time, this group develops a totally and unmistakable individual character. No group is really alike. Yeah. So we do things as a group and uh, be conscious that what you do has an effect on the group, whether that uh, is how you open and close doors or whether that how you shuffle around or uh, whether how you hold other beings whom you may share the space with in your mind. Yeah. This has a profound effect. So be aware that you are part of a collective effort. This is a collective process, retreats. There are things which are obvious to you, there are things which are easily seen, and there are things which are not easily seen and may not be so obvious to you. Nevertheless, trust me, this is a collective experience. We have embarked on a collective experience and we build an atmosphere that is collectively useful. We individually benefit from a collective ambience we all create together. So please be aware of this in your 
thoughts and your feelings for others and in your social awareness. Obviously, what we do hinges on your willingness to kind of allow this to affect you. Uh, That starts with the schedule and it goes with how you uh, receive what, what I offer or what your mind may offer. Retreats are always slightly miraculous. We never quite know what we get ourselves into. Even if you've done many of those, you you tend to be surprised how unpredictable things can be. Last time it was really great, and I was totally in charge, and it was fantastic, and it was just still and solid. And next time it's a tiger's ride, you know. The mind is quite uh, many faceted. And it has many recesses we don't easily see and feel into. And some some of the time we get a story we don't actually we haven't actually invited. You know, our notion of progress or of practice may not be um, as it um, pleases our mind to manifest. So please try to make your notion of meditation and of retreat big. Make it as big so that everything that happens here for the time being, uh, that it has space in your notion of retreat and of meditation. Make it bigger than your nose, definitely. Make it bigger than your meditation mat, definitely. Make it big. This is a big practice. It's not designed for weekends. It's not designed for retreats. It's designed for a life. It's designed to change hearts and make human beings happy, make them free and make them capable of compassionate activity. This um, is not something that fits easily into a weekend program. So um, please be prepared that some bits may be left unfinished. There is something to life that says uh, this is unfinished. That seems to be one of the lessons that life has to give to us. If your mind does speak, if your heart does speak, um, be prepared to listen. This is not a bad sign if it speaks. Even if it speaks of things that you may feel are not flattering or unexpected or even undesired. Uh, If it speaks, this is good. There is an intelligence in us, uh, a deeper intelligence than we are most of the time conscious, that is capable of listening, that is capable of attending, and that is capable of processing. Even though our mental notions, our self-images, may stumble behind a little bit. So, be as open, be as willing to engage this practice and engage meeting your mind when you plunge into its depth or when you start fathoming its depths, then uh, be prepared to listen. This is precious. Even if you might not like it, it is still precious. Yeah? There is something we're all engaged in that is profounder than our expectations of good and bad, of normal and not, of pleasant and unpleasant. This is a big journey. So I would like you to have a big notion of what's happening, a big a big heart for what is happening. Let me say something um, about uh, the mind. The English 
word mind has a sort of delightful, rubbery quality to it, isn't it? We don't really know what that means. Yeah, it can mean just about anything. I don't mind, and uh, uh, the big mind, or I had in mind, or yeah, all these things mean totally different, uh, have totally different connotations. Let me say something about the Buddhist understanding of experience. At the heart of this experience is something the Buddha calls citta. Citta is a strange animal. It doesn't really manifest as a solid core of our life. It is, um, we intuit it as the, the center or the continuum of our experience where things happen. Sometimes we say heart, then we generally mean more the affective, the emotional tone um, of our experience. Sometimes we say mind, and we may mean more the cognitive, conceptual uh, tone of our mind. The Buddha, in a stubbornly, stubbornly unwilling, uh, does not define the term citta properly in the early suttas, very much to the chagrin of later commentators who have done a great deal of work to define it clearly, split it up into uh, all kinds of minutiae. The Buddha uses this term, and it is obvious when we look how he uses this term, that he doesn't separate the intellectual part of our experience from the heart part of our experience. So when he uses the term citta, he uses it always in the context of development, of purification, of collectedness, of um, luminosity. That mind is at the same time capable of profoundest intuitions. It is, uh, it is radiant, it is intrinsically pure, it is capable of happiness, of genuine understanding. Unfortunately, that very same mind is also, can, can be seduced. It can be seduced into contractions. It can be seduced to run after things and run away from things. It can be frightened and uh, freeze up. Uh, it can be clouded over. That mind can be fixated on things, can sink its teeth into things and not let go of these things. So we have at the heart of Buddhist teaching a notion of a heart in human beings that can be just about anything, that is capable of the highest things and is capable of the most profound pain. That area, let's call it continuum or let's call it the heart of our experience, that area is where the Buddha sees his field of action. That's where he uh, dedicated uh, 45 years of his life to help human beings understand this area of their lives, to uh, gain insight into some of the dynamics, to reform that part, to train that part, to tame that part, to free that part, and finally to completely liberate that. That's the domain of practice. What we funnily call meditation in, in Buddhist language, or in early Buddhist language, is called 
not meditation at all, is called bhavana. That means something like developing, um, unfolding, or in a maybe biggest sense, it means something like culture. It's making something grow. The strange word meditation comes from the Benedictine tradition, as some of you may know. Benedictine tradition has a sort of triple step. The first part is the lectio, is the reading, where you take something on board. The second part is uh, the meditatio, where you consciously and cognitively reflect on what you have taken on board. And the third part, which would probably more akin to Buddhist meditation, is the contemplatio, which is the uh, non-conceptual processing of what you have understood in your first reading and what you have reflected upon. Now, for some strange reason I do not understand, Buddhist meditation has become uh, translated as meditation. If we look how the Buddha taught this notion of bhavana, we see that our understanding of this uh, falls somewhat short of the breadth of his teaching. He spoke of four big domains where this culture of ours, this unfolding of uh, mind and heart, should happen. The first area is the area he calls kaya bhavana, which is the development of body. How we treat our bodies, how we treat other bodies, and finally how we treat this planet is our relationship to the physical world. There's a big, big area in there, and uh, this is a chapter of uh, Buddhist ecology which isn't yet written and isn't yet properly lived. That chapter will have to be dealt with at another moment. The second part of his notion of development is what he calls our relationship to the social world. He calls that sila bhavana, it's the cultivation <laughs> of our ethic and our relational attitudes. Yeah. This is a huge chapter in human lives. This is for good reason that we're keenly interested in each other because we mean a lot to each other. And while we're seemingly alone, uh, and this is some, there is something we have to accept in the fact that we are alone in, our, in one aspect of our experience and that we have to take alone responsibility for our Uh, the things we do and we don't do, uh, the things we make public and we don't, the things we enact and we don't, there is also, once we have accepted the aloneness of that responsibility, a tremendous amount we can do for each other. So the whole second chapter of development in the Buddha sense refers to being with others, being relational, being ethical and clear in our impact we have on other beings. It's a huge domain. There is much to be written for that chapter in the translation of Buddhism into the Western culture uh, that has yet not that, that, that hasn't yet really happened. The third chapter is more known. The third chapter is called Jitta Bhavana and the Buddha there speaks very clearly of stilling the mind of purifying the mind, of allowing the mind to col- to be collected. That's what meditation in Buddhist meditation centers is much about. Yeah, that's the bit we seem to know maybe best. 
It's a profound uh, chapter. It's neglected in Western culture, and that's one of the reasons why we're fascinated with it. Well, because we sense in this message of coming from the East, and particularly from Buddhist teachings, which has a lot to say in that, we sense a def- uh, that we are deficient in this. Our culture doesn't really equip us with a lot of tools in helping us to make the mind still and uh, fathom the depth of that stillness and uh, help us access the strengths that lie in that stillness and the power and clarity that uh, are buried therein. The fourth part of development is the part of wisdom. It's the it's Panyabhavana. It is the development of understanding. <laughs> Be aware, in Pali language, there are about 16 or so words for the term wisdom. Yeah. Uh, languages have words for the things they feel are important. Yeah. It's easy to understand. If you have things that are important to you, you will have many uh, differentiated terms for this thing. Just think of how many words we have for men or for women or for uh, food, or for talking. We have many, many words for these things. In um, Pali language, uh, we have many words for the notion of wisdom. In English, and in many other German, German and French, we don't really have that many words for this. Wisdom, insight, understanding, and then it starts to get already more exotic. So be aware that... Some of these translations we use are simplifications. And we make things sometimes more simple than they are. So the development of such wisdom is a major issue in Buddhist teaching. It is the wisdom to understand the workings of mind that makes us more free. It's not the power of our will or the capacity to fixate our minds at the tip of our noses that makes us free. It's not even our capacity to restrain our impulses or to renounce our desires that makes us free. Wisdom is that which truly liberates the heart. The only thing that truly liberates the heart. If your wisdom doesn't liberate the heart... It isn't quite there yet. Unfortunately, we cannot really gobble that wisdom with the spoon. If we start looking at our minds, uh, we need quite a few other qualities of heart to be able to understand and develop that wisdom. Uh, Compassion, self-love, that's something we're not so good at here. Um, Patience, humility, uprightness, Guts. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are necessary for the development of wisdom. One of the things that is necessary for developing wisdom is um, being able to understand more deeply aspects of our lives that are both fascinating and threatening. Yeah. Our capacity to be with things that are fascinating, that enthrall us, that rivet us, and things that are threatening us, that are um, possibly flooding us, or that are offensive to our self-image, this capacity is something the Buddha values greatly. 
These things are more likely to happen, and that brings me to the title of our retreat, if we meet other people. As long as I am alone, I, I am capable of remarkable degrees of stillness. You know? Interesting bits start flying around when there are other people, possibly people who ha- have similar aspirations like myself, but other opinions. Yeah? Then suddenly some of that stillness starts to get a bit wobbly. There is no difference whether this is in your kindergarten or in your marriage or in your monastery. Believe me, as somebody who has been in these places, I recognize parallel patterns in all of these. Human beings tend to stimulate us, and where human beings invest a lot of their time and their efforts and their energies, they get identified with things. And when they get identified, they find it more difficult to bear dissent, to bear conflict. It's threatening. It hurts. It makes us crazy. And that's the wilderness we have to enter because we are always with human beings. We are never really alone. It's silly to think. We're on this planet with about 7 billion people. But truly, even if you're alone on the moon, if you happen to be the first to inhabit the apocalyptic fields in the moon, you you will never really be quite alone because there is the smallest unit of your experience is always two. Yeah, It's you in relationship to what's happening. It's you in relationship to your mind. It's you in relationship to your body. Or just to be simple, it's you in relationship to something. We're never really truly alone. We may feel isolated and ostracized, excommunicated, rejected, but we're never really alone. So that relational aspect of human experience is something that needs to be looked at. And that brings us inevitably into the wilderness, because relationship has always echoes of relationships that had to do with our upbringing, that have to do with our expectations, with our wishes, with our needs. And there goes the wilderness. As as soon as I come off my meditation cushion, as soon as I come out of my perfectly controlled meditative world, I enter a world in which I am no longer in control anymore. A world in which I suddenly have needs, I differ from others, I experience painful discrepancies between my wishes and their wishes, my understanding and their understanding. And this is obviously felt most closely with the people who are most close. So, there is a a good reason that Buddhist practice is something that has to extend into the world of our relationship and that we need to look at what are Buddhist values and what are Buddhist tools we can apply in our relationships. Uh, The wilderness is fertile. It's threatening, but we can't stop it from happening. You understand? Uh, Just because things are difficult doesn't mean they are not worth trying or they are not fantastic potentials for growth or areas where we can maybe make our most profound experiences. Um, So I hope to do some exercises with you in uh, our weekend 
and address some of the issues and maybe look at some of the things that make our mind that can be both radiant and luminous and untroubled like the full moon, yeah, reflecting as th- clearly as things are. Um, and the very mind that can be the proverbial monkey mind that jumps around, a monkey mind that actually has canonical basis. You know, this is not an invent. This is not a new age invention. The monkey mind it is a Pali canonical occurrence. Just to be clear, you know, the Buddha referred to the mind uh, on one occasion as a kapi chitta. Kapi is a monkey, or he referred in a very powerful analogy and says, as a monkey who grasps one branch, swinging itself through the forest, grasps the next branch and the next, in such a way the mind runs from one idea to an image, to a wish, to an emotion, to another idea. So this mind that holds both potentials, that of the still gradient full moon as uh, as a time, uh, an age-old image of enlightenment, and that of a crazy monkey running through the forest, the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, uh, that mind can be looked at. It can be uh, studied, it can be understood, it can be influenced to be more quiet, more clear, and more loving. So I hope to be able to do some practical exercises with you um, and wish to end for tonight. I trusted, uh, or I'm sure some of you have come from a long distance, and I would like us to have a good night's sleep, and would love to start with you tomorrow with a wake-up bell, um, and with those of you who wish to do some qigong and breathing and some stretching in here with me at 6.15, and for all of us at uh, 6.45 for a first sitting. Any questions? Good. I wish you a good retreat and I wish you a good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.